This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Uh, it's a joy to be here. Uh, this place has fond memories for me. And we're here for 12 years, six years for my MDiv, six years for my PHM. And um, enjoyed all of it. It was all here in body, nothing online. Glad to be here and enjoyed it, enjoyed the fellowship and the friendship here, and it had a great impact on my life. And I'm thankful for two institutions as far as training is concerned, Bob Jones and this institution. And don't regret any of the classes or time I spent here. But uh, I did take a long time to get those classes done, but at least I was drinking out of a water fountain instead of the proverbial fire hydrant. I want to uh, speak on the theology of the storm. And so we're going to look at Mark 4, 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. It's part of the series I did in my church called What Happens When Peace People Meet Christ. This was called Peace in the Storm, the Theology of the Storm. So we'll read there together, beginning of verse 35. I'll read out of the ESV this morning. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said one to another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? On Saturday, the 27th, 2013, a friend of mine in ministry, Chuck Phelps, told me that was the day that his world turned upside down. He was in his office on that Saturday and a yellow bus pulled into the church parking lot and it was full of fourth through sixth graders and he heard the kids screaming on the bus, which isn't uh, typical for kids coming back from camp. But he thought the screaming was a little unusual and so he texted his son, Chad, who's the youth pastor, and Chad was on the other bus, which was an over-the-road bus. Both of them were coming back from Kobiak that day, on that afternoon. And he said, Chad, everything okay with the junior bus? But he didn't get an answer. Chuck is in the parking lot, and some man comes up to him. He says, Pastor, the other bus has been in a terrible accident at 465 in Keystone. So immediately Chuck drove over there, and when he got there, he saw the bus turned over on its side, and a U.S. Marshal who had been on the bus uh, with the church came up to Pastor Phelps. He said, Pastor Chad, his son, didn't make it. And he said his wife, Courtney, she didn't make it either. She was seven months pregnant at the time. At that very moment, Caleb, Chuck's other son, had run all the way across the busy parkway and picked up 
Chad and Courtney's son, who was 21 months of age at that time. He was in the bus, he was bruised, and he brought him to Chuck at that very moment. And Chuck said at that moment in his life, he didn't even know what to think. His head was scrambled, his mouth was parched, and he couldn't even think straight. And Chuck asked a very good question. He said, how does one go from trauma to tranquility? He wrote an article about this. I read the article. And I'll say some of the things that he mentions in that process of going from trauma to tranquility. Our passage is about storms in life. And it tells us primarily who Jesus is, that he's the Lord of creation. And when people meet him, he brings peace to people's lives in the midst of storms. Now, we're not far here from River Rouge, and many of you are familiar with the train story, the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was built here in 1968. It was built here along with the Arthur B. Holmes' sister ship. Uh, They were launched in 1968 together. They were two of the largest ships on the Great Lakes. The Edmund Fitzgerald was 729 feet long. And for 17 years, that ship had sailed the Great Lakes successfully. And then in November of, I think it was 1975, November of 1975, that particular ship launched from Duluth, Minnesota. And one of the worst storms ever hit Lake Superior in 30 years hit that particular day. And they had been battling the storm. The seamen who were on other ships said that the winds were howling between 80 and 96 miles an hour. The gusts at 96, the sustained winds at 86. The winds were so strong that other sailors said that it sounded like a hundred sirens going on at once. And then when the waves would hit the hull of the ship, it was like a thousand wrecking balls hitting the steel plates of that ship. About 7 o'clock that night, just a little bit past uh, the time of darkness had come, That ship, 729 feet long, dealing with waves about three stories high. They would hit the front of the ship, and they would roll six to 700 feet along the deck. It was carrying 26,000 tons of iron ore, more than the weight of the ship. More than the weight of the ship. And so about 7.15 or so, in a process of 10 seconds, that hull began to bend. And then it snapped like a bone was breaking in two pieces. And both pieces of the ship went down 500 feet and settled 170 feet apart from one another. Of course, that song has been, ship has been memorialized by Gordon Lightfoot. And he said it was like a bone to be chewed, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Inland waters form unique treacheries, as they do in this passage. They have rhythms that are often different than the ocean. Their freshwater waves are not rhythmic as much as the oceans are, and they're contradictory. And they're very vulnerable to the topography and geography of the surrounding coastlines. Also, quick temperature inversions cause violent changes of weather. And the smaller sizes of these small bodies of water can be very deceptive. They can give a false sense of safety. 
The Sea of Galilee is five miles wide from east to west, 13 miles long from south to north. It is known for these types of storms. It lies 628 feet below sea level and is surrounded by imposing mountains. I've been there on two occasions, and these mountains have these large gorges in them. They found that these gorges are like gigantic funnels bringing winds whirling down upon them. They're really similar to hurricane winds when they come up. Also, there's a thermal buildup in the very low valley, and that sucks the cold air downward. This is the scenario that Christ and the disciples are in. That day was a strenuous day of ministry for the Lord Christ, much like the days you have as a pastor. He had endured that day the blasphemous accusations of the Pharisees who accused Christ of doing his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of filth. His own siblings had attempted to kidnap Christ and force him home because they thought he was out of his mind. Then Christ went to the sea. And when he began teaching there, a great crowd unceasingly pressed against him way into the evening. And finally, Christ went into a boat and he finished his teaching there under the hot Middle Eastern sun. And at the end of the day, Christ was physically and mentally exhausted from his work. And he gives the order to pull out. Verse 35 says, On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side, leaving the crowd. They took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now the Greek tense here reveals a note of urgency to depart. He was tired. He knew he couldn't continue to work that day. So Christ moves to the stern of the boat, where he wearily reclines on a hard wooden bench, and he places his head on a small cushion. The disciples hoisted the sail, and they began the five-mile trip across the lake, followed by a small flotilla of admirers. The sea was calm. The sun had set. The picture was idyllic until suddenly, as the parallel passage in Matthew Matthew 8 tells us, without warning, verse 24, a massive storm begins blasting the lake, and that 27-foot fishing boat is being tossed to and fro. We're about to learn storm theology. And we'll learn while in the storm, and we'll learn while in the calm. What did we learn at the beginning of the storm? Verse 37. And there was a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over as much that the boat was already filling up, and Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And the imperfect tense here tells us that the waves were continually crashing into the boat. Matthew uses the term seismos, meaning earthquake, to describe the ferocity of the storm. It was like the lake, the Sea of Galilee, was being shaken. Great mountains of water are rising and washing over the boat, and the boat is seriously in danger of washing these men into a watery grave. It would plunge and it would rise, and the men were afraid. Luke tells us in the parallel passage that, quote, a hurricane of wind came down upon the lake. What do we learn in the storm, at the beginning of the storm? The storm is teaching us here something about God and his power over creation. But not just his power over creation. It's God and his power over our lives and their lives. And frankly, this is essential to my spiritual development and yours, without difficulty, without storms, without trials, without stresses, without failures. We will not grow 
as believers. Storms are part of the process. Spiritual truth is often apprehended through great affliction. Without storms, every one of us will become spiritual midgets, self-absorbed, spiritual pygmies, proud, selfish, self-consumed, empty people. And so when the storms in our life come, and they do come, and they come often, as I've mentioned to you, I have three funerals in the next five days when I serve. I've had a young man in elementary school try to hang himself in our school earlier last year. We found him 30 seconds before he was dead and saved his life. It was a miraculous thing. He was unconscious for seven days at Beaumont Hospital. And one of the most unique answers to prayer I've ever seen, he came out of it perfectly normal after seven days in a total coma. Storms. A friend of mine, Pastor Billy Gosey in his school, had one of his elementary teachers arrested for simply grabbing a second grader's arm and accidentally scratching maybe a quarter of an inch on her arm when she grabbed her. And she's being arrested. And the state attorney is pressing charges against their church and their school. I just talked to Pastor Gosey yesterday, a graduate of this institution. He keeps telling me this is the stuff that seminary never prepares you for. And that's just two events in the last few months. Storms. They come. We must pray, Lord, let me ride the storm to you. Because the storm was the next spiritual step for these disciples. And they, like us, had to make the most of it. Well, where was Jesus at the beginning of this storm? Verse 38, in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. To me, this is almost as remarkable as the suddenness of the storm. Jesus is fast asleep on hard boards and a small pillow. I would have to think that only great weariness could have made him comfortable in that situation. He remained asleep. He wasn't pretending. I used to pretend to be asleep and my dad would come home drunk and I would lay in the bed pretending I was asleep so he wouldn't want to fight me or disturb me or who knows what else. But Jesus really was asleep. Despite the howling winds and the tossing boat and the wet spray, he genuinely was asleep. In the incarnation, Jesus Christ can calm the storm with infinite divine power, and yet he is sleeping here in a weary body. What a display of human weakness and divine omnipotence harmoniously coalescing together in non-contradictory divine revelation. It's an amazing picture. No human mind could invent this. Christ lived in total dependence upon his Father. So his sleep is real sleep because he knew his Father would awaken him to do his will. Now the disciples thought Christ was totally unaware of their plight. It pictures how often we feel in life's storms. We mistakenly conclude that we are alone in the storm. I'm alone pastoring this church. Nobody knows the problems I'm facing. Not even God knows what's happening to me. Not even God knows how I am feeling. That's what we think. That's what I think. But I know that the Bible teaches that God knows every way that falls upon myself and yourself. God knows the rate of our hearts. He knows our innermost thoughts. He knows our deepest emotions. Frankly, God knows our unspoken ambitions. Perhaps today you're sitting here in seminary. Maybe your marriage is floundering. 
You wouldn't be the first seminary student to have a difficult marriage. You wouldn't be the first pastor to end in divorce. Your relationships maybe are melting. Untold stress in your job. Or maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you're battling a terrible disease or someone in your family is. Perhaps you're dealing with an errant child. You feel like you're drowning in these storms. But the Bible is telling us here that God will meet us in our deepest distress. And trust, I hope, will be the epiphany of the landscape of your life. So what do we learn in the beginning of the storm? We learn that God has sovereign autonomy over creation and over our lives. We learn that without storms, we would be spiritual pygmies, self-absorbed and empty people. We learn that in the beginning of the storm, we often mistakenly conclude that we are alone. That's what we learn in the beginning of the storm. What do we learn during the storm? Verse 38, the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, King James says, Carest thou not that we perish? Teacher, don't you care if we drown? People who are about to die are not always rational people. Of course, Christ cares. But they ask it anyway. Interestingly, in Gordon Lightfoot's memorial of the event of the Edmund Fitzgerald, he writes an interesting line. He says, Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn minutes into hours? Can you imagine that those sailors were thinking seconds before their ship went into the they question, where does the love of God go? Perhaps he's busy counting sparrows and looking at lilies. He's so busy doing that, he's forgotten me. These men, all disciples, were all afraid, and they were afraid that they were going to die. They were going to perish. Not just them. They were afraid that Jesus was going to die. Even he had his hands full, they thought. Afraid that all his promises would come to naught. All the promises about the coming kingdom of God would be lost, that everything's going down with the ship. All is lost. And I've thought that more than once. Will I ever learn? Will we ever learn? So verse 39 says, And he, Christ, got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. He stands up, and in our language, he says, quiet, be still. The word here is be muzzled. He muzzles the storm like you would muzzle a dog. And the tense indicates the wind immediately stopped. All three Gospels say that there was a sudden calm. The mighty hand of God brushes away the wind and presses down the sea. Interestingly to me, the storm did not disturb the master, but the disciples did. That's God, isn't it? You can handle everything, but it's the disciples that really get to them. But this is nothing new for the Lord. You know, the psalmist writes in Psalm 107, verse 23, these interesting words. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their souls melted in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man. 
and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he, the Lord, brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he, God, guided them to their desired heaven. This really is nothing new to the Lord, is it? That was written by the psalmist. Psalm 106 says, God rules the surging seas when his waves mount up. God stills them. Teaches us that Jesus truly is, in the midst of the storm, the Lord of creation. Whether it's John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Paul writes in Colossians 1, For by Him are all things created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers and authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. Now we're familiar with those verses, but if you consider the vastness of what creation is, those verses are astounding. Last week, the famed Cambridge physicist Stephen Hawking died. He had all kinds of theories about the origins of the universe. I told our congregation, now he has one more theory. And that one's no theory, it's a fact. But in his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, he says in that book that our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is only an average-sized galaxy. It's like a small swirl in a pastry roll. Pastry roll. He says it's 100,000 light years across, which is 6 trillion miles. But he goes on to say that there are 100,000 million galaxies that you can see them with modern-day telescopes. 100,000 million galaxies. He says the average size of these other galaxies are 600 trillion miles across. He says there's three million light years between each galaxy on average. And God made all of it. And he made all of it in six literal 24-hour days. Edwin Hubble, the famed originator of the Hubble telescope, says that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. He says it's racing away from the Earth at 200 million miles an hour. And this passage tells us God is Lord of all of it. He created everything. He created every atom. Because not only do you have the universe, you have these sub-microscopic solar systems in atoms like quarks and leptons and electrons and neutrinos. They're so small, they have literally no measurable size. That's a different meaning. And he holds it all together. Every speck of cosmic dust is his creation. He is the atomic glue of the universe, creator, sustainer, savior, and goal. That's what we learned during the storm. But practically, what do we learn after the storm? Thank goodness storms come to an end. Our lives go from one storm to another, but they do come to an end. Even as my professor, Dr. Pinozian, once said in History of Civilization, his favorite phrase was, even this shall pass away. See? So we come to verse 40, and he says to them, Why are you afraid? This is Christ speaking. Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said one toward another, Who then is this 
that even the wind and sea obey him. What do we learn after the storm? What kind of faith casts out this kind of fear? It is faith that truly believes the scriptural revelation about God's power and God's love and truly believes it. Do we believe in his power? Do we believe in his love? Because this is the kind of faith that sees that Christ is in the boat with us. You get some terrible news. Maybe it's about a family member who's departed from the faith. Someone who has a terminal illness. Terrible news about something going on in the life of one of your church members that's going to require every ounce of wisdom you can conjure up. What kind of faith casts out fear? Do we believe in His power and His love? Do we have the kind of faith that sees that Christ is in the boat with us? He's in my family. He's in my church. He's in my job. He's in my health situation. The church, as we know, is in the midst of the world. And the world is a violent place. The world is a stormy place. It's not nothing, it's not anything new. Early Christian art often depicted the church in this way. If you look at old paintings or ancient mosaics, you'll see this rendition of the church. Christ is in the boat with us because of Christ. Whatever our storm is, if we know him, our boat will not sink. No matter what happens. Fear is part of human nature. We all battle it. Every one of us. I do. People, in general, fear life. They, they fear all kinds of things. They fear they're inadequate for the challenges ahead. I thought that from the day I accepted the call to preach at 11 years of age at Calvary Baptist Church in Oak Forest, Illinois, and I went forward, I was overcome with a sense of fear that I was inadequate for the task. It stayed with me my whole life. The first time I walked onto campus at Bob Jones University, the first time I'd ever been in a Christian school of any kind, there were a thousand men in the ministerial class back in those days. And the first thought I had was, how could I ever be adequate to the task? Look at all these men. I remember the men who were on the platform at the time, Dr. Minnick and uh, Dr. Wayne Van Gelden Jr. Uh, they're now doctors now, but they weren't then. They were just ordinary people. <laughs> John Davis. And I looked at those men as a freshman thinking, look at these guys. Look at their skills and their leadership and their talent. And I don't know anything. I came out of a public school. You could fill my knowledge of the Bible in a thimble. We all fear we're inadequate to the task. We fear problems for which we see no solution. No solution. The winds of war in our communities and in our nation are howling and it says there is no hope. But God is telling us here, believe that through hardships, afflictions, storms, and challenges, you will grow as a believer. And if not, if we don't believe that, we're going to be held captive to the tyranny of ourselves. Christ is capable of delivering us with a word. Hush! Quiet! Be still! 
And that same Christ can calm your storm. He is with you before, during, and after the storm. 1926, Moody Monthly printed an interesting article, a true story about Irish sanctions. And they reprinted the article a number of years ago. Iris Sankey was the co-evangelist, song leader, and really co-servant of D.L. Moody. They got together in the 1870s. They served together all together for about 25 years. And for several years, they served in the United Kingdom together and made quite a name for themselves. Well, in 1875, they made their way back to the United States. And they were internationally known at that time. When they got back, Sankey was on a ship floating down the Delaware River on Christmas Eve. It's a beautiful moonlit night. And since he was well known, some of the passengers recognized him and said, Would you, would you sing for us a Christmas carol Christmas Eve? And so he said, Yes, he would. But as he began to think of what he would sing, he changed his mind and he began singing William Bradbury's famous hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. As he was singing the song, he was looking up into the sky. It was a beautiful starlit night. While he was singing that song, a man stepped out of the shadow. And he's looking at Sankey. And after Sankey had finished singing, he says, did you ever serve in the Civil War? And Sankey, yes, I did. I served in 1860. I served on the Union side. He said, do you ever remember in 1862 serving on picket duty one particular evening? He goes, well, I served often, yes. He said, I served in the Civil War too, but I was in the Confederate Army, and I remember hearing you sing. He said, you did? He goes, yes. One night, I was again hiding in the shadows behind some brush. You were out in the full light of the moon that evening, and you were doing your duty, and I had you in my gun sight. I had my musket pointed right at you. And you lifted your eyes toward heaven, and you began singing, and the same song you sang tonight was the same song you sang then. I remember it so well. And I thought to myself, let him sing to the end, and then I'll shoot. But when you finished the song, the words of that song reminded me of my mother, who often sang that song to me when I was a boy. And he quoted the song to her. And the song was speaking about being the guardian of our Lord. He said, when you sung that song, I put my musket down and I thought to myself, a God who could be powerful enough to cause this man to sing that song that night to remind me of what my mother had taught me as a Christian back in those days. That God is powerful enough to be the guardian of our Lord. He said, my arms went limp to my side. I couldn't even raise them. I couldn't raise my musket to put you back in my sight again. Sankey's life was spared in 1862 by the providential working of God who caused 
thank you to sing that song at that particular moment, that particular time. True story. Printed originally in 1976, reprinted years later. It tells me that all of us, as we are in the will of God, are immortal to the day we die. As long as God has a work for us to do, and we are doing it, we are immortal until the day we die, no matter what we face. Going back to Chuck Self, he said, how do you move from tranquility, from trauma to tranquility? Chuck said he had learned so many things. I invited him to come to our church on January, on June the 8th, I believe, or June the 9th, Sunday night, and to give this message to our church that Sunday night. One of the things Chuck said he learned was the countess blessing. Even though he had this terrible tragedy, the loss of his son, his daughter-in-law, and his future granddaughter, he still had many blessings to count on. He said, I learned to listen to the voice of God in his word in a much more deep fashion than I ever had done. He said, I learned that I still had a work to do and I had to get back to the work that God had called me to do and couldn't let this stop me from serving God. He also said, I learned how important it was to gather with God's people. That for him and Linda, after this event had happened, the last thing that he and Linda, according to their own words, the last thing that they wanted to do was go to church. They didn't want to go to church. He said, even though I didn't want to go, I always did go. And every time I went, I was glad I went. He said, church was the only place that Linda and I felt normal. He said, every song that was sung brought tears to our eyes. Every sermon made them weep. He also said, I had to learn to be honest about my own hurts. I had to learn to be receptive of the kindnesses of other people. He said, my whole life I have given to other people. And I was not comfortable anyone giving to me. I had to learn to accept the kindnesses and gracious works of God's people in my life. And finally, he said, I had to learn to be honest about my hurts. Because we were hurting. And he says, I still am. But we're going on to the Lord. I was just with Chuck not a month ago. And I saw his little grandson, who was 21 months of age. Now he looks like he's about six years of age. And he came running up to his grandfather. They're raising him. And just a fine young man. And God has given them another son to raise. And they're raising him. And they're doing a good job. I don't know what kind of storm, friend, you're facing, will face. But I guarantee you, we are going to face them. And they're going to be so severe at times. We can learn in the beginning of the storm. We learn during the storm. And we learn at the end of the storm. This is the theology of the storm. And we have to ask God for strength and faith to believe that he truly is a God of great power, immense, enormous, infinite power, and infinite love, and that he's always in the boat with us. And as long as we know that, our boat, no matter what we face, our boat will never sink. And that's the theology of the storm, by God's grace in your lives. I pray that God will give us all strength when these storms come. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you for your word. We pray that it will be effective in our lives. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. 
DBTS is a ministry of Inner City Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.